Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Litt from Dear Author. This week, we are talking about three things. First is a discussion of the book, A Study in Seduction by Nina Rowan. Jane liked it. I did not. And we have a pretty extensive back and forth debate about what worked for her and didn't work for me. And it's really interesting when you read a book and someone has the exact opposite reaction you did. I'm assuming that's happened to you at some point. This can't be just me that this happens to. We also answer some reader mail or listener mail about our recent podcast on serial fiction. And then Jane gives some brief opinions about the Department of Justice settlement and what's likely to happen in the future with the continued quest to smack the crap out of agency pricing. Yay! Not that I'm in favor on one side or the other or anything. No, not at all. The music you're listening to was provided by Sassy Atwater. I will have information at the end of the podcast about the artist, the track, and where you can buy it. And, of course, I will link to all the books that we discuss. I will warn you, we don't discuss a lot of books in this podcast, but we discuss a few. Speaking of books, Harlequin has some things they'd like to tell you. They are kind enough to sponsor the podcast, and in exchange, I tell you about things that they're doing. Are you ready to hear? Here are some things that they are doing, because Harlequin is always doing something. Calling all budding romance authors. Join Harlequin's writing contest, So You Think You Can Write, at soyouthinkyoucanwrite.com. Now, I just totally took a look at the website, soyouthinkyoucanwrite.com, and beginning on September 23rd, which was a couple days ago, you can submit your first chapter and plus a 100-word pitch for the series that you've targeted, and then all of the chapter submissions are due September 30th, because then there's public voting. Dun, dun, dun. And at the end, you could win, like, a publishing contract and stuff, so that's pretty fly. And, yeah, you've been listening to me yammer enough, so now, on with the podcast. So A Study in Seduction by Nina Rowan um, is a book that came to my attention after reading a review of from Jennifer R. and, and from Romance Novel News. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, she is not a debut author. She's written other books, um, both as an erotica author and I think another, I, maybe just straight historical, I can't recall. Mm-hmm. But... Um, this is her first book with Forever, I believe, or at least the first historical romance from Forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I liked it. I mean, I don't think it was uh, a you know a review or a book, but uh, I thought it was interesting, different, and the I particularly liked the resolution. But I take it from your email to me that you despise this book. I didn't despise it, but I got really impatient with it with it in a, in a big hurry. I was alerted about this book, I think, by a friend of the author's who brought it to my attention because the heroine is a mathematician. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she's a mathematic savant, basically. She's a child prodigy and, and demonstrated from a very early age that she knew everything about math. And I think that the person had emailed me because I had said at some point I, I liked interesting heroines and I liked heroines who were a little different. And the description sounded awesome. So I started reading it. And I think, you, was it you in your email that said it was sort of like Courtney Milan? Yeah. I had the exact same thought, only I thought it was watered down Courtney Milan, like heavily watered down to the point where 
If you've ever given your kid juice and you dilute the juice and you dilute it to the point where it's just a vaguely colored water, that's what this was. Vaguely colored Courtney Milan water. What bothered me the most was that I understood that the heroine was mathematically gifted and I understand that she had a great deal of mental energy expended on math problems and she would create them and she would try to quantify things. And given her conversations with other mathematicians who are men in the course of the story, she has created a, a she's created a, a reputation for herself of being very, very intelligent and gifted and people do respect her intellect. As a reader, I never got an understanding of what it was that numbers did for her. Why was why was math so comforting? Not not just why was it her very ex, ex, you know extremely powerful talent, but why was math so comforting? There were scenes where she would be really emotionally stressed and she'd start repeating mathematical theorems, but they had as much they made they made no sense to me. They had they made as much sense as if she had been repeating successories or motivational posters, or, you know, ingredients of a recipe. There was no connection as to why math was so important to her, except, well, it was. And I was told that it was so that I should accept that it was. But I didn't accept it because I didn't think there was any explanation as to what she found in mathematics that was so much better than reality at some points. Wow, I totally disagree with you. I thought that the author did a great job of showing how mathematics was the comfort of the heroine and how she used that as an emotional crutch and she sought refuge in it because that was the one thing uh, area in which she excelled. I think that's a very natural and believable and authentic characterization. Um, I only compared it to Courtney Milan because she has a tendency to write some real cerebral characters in the past. Yes, I agree with you. Um, and and uh, the heroine in this character in this book was very cerebral, and her uh, focus uh, was on mathematics. When you know, as the story goes on, you learn that she her father had been absent, her mother was abs- emotionally absent, and, um, not only emotionally absent but almost emotionally destructive. And she was on her own for a long period of time, and the only real attention that she got was through fostering of her mathematic education, and the only real approval that she got was through the admiration that people had for her abilities in mathematics. So her identity was wrapped up in that, and her comfort was wrapped up in that, and yeah, her reliance on citing mathematical equations to calm herself may have not been any more uh, sensical than citing reciting successories, but that's just the point. The point is that she relied on math to uh, self-soothe, just like babies cry. I mean, that was her, that was her um, method of calming and reconnecting and gaining control. I so agree I- with you. I fully got that that's what she was doing. My problem was why was it comforting? She wasn't actually doing calculations. She was repeating words. Right. That's so a, she was repeating theories. She wasn't actually doing any mathematical calculations. She was repeating words. She might have been saying, you know, there is no I in team. It had no connection to me. I felt very distant from this heroine and had a very hard time empathizing with her, not only because she just repeated words that made no sense and 
everything that happened to her that was supposed to create empathy, I was told about. I know that she had a lonely childhood and I know that she felt very isolated, but I never saw her feeling those emotions. I saw her reporting those emotions. She was as distant from those emotions as she was from the actual math of the theorems that she was repeating. She was just repeating words. So that for me created a huge barrier and I couldn't empathize with her because she was talking about math. She wasn't doing math. Uh, I just totally disagree. I mean, well, I'm right. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree completely. You, sh- you saw her loneliness. She was, she had only her grandmother who was very distant from her and her, uh, sister. And, uh, that was the entirety of her world. And, and because of her past, she had very little social interaction with anyone else except the, for these individuals who, uh, these other math individuals in her life. So I, I saw her as very isolated and, um, I thought that the recitation of math theorems in her head is not unlike what an autistic person would do. Um, it's, uh, a person who seeks, uh, comfort in counting, for example, or simply reciting, uh, um, uh, a scripture verse, for example, that's a very uh, plausible and believable um, characteristic or behavior. I, I thought that was entirely um, understandable. Well, here, this may be my problem. If someone is going to count, that's a progression. I understand you're ascend- ascending in numbers or you're doing some sort of calculation. You are arriving at a number. If you are going to repeat a Bible verse, that verse is going to have significance. You know, if you're going to say to yourself, okay, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, which means I should not go and kick that person's ass because I need to remember that that is not my job. That is God's job. And I'm going to take that one quote and I'm going to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. It has meaning. The things that she was saying had no meaning connecting to the text as far as I was concerned. Sure it did. It had meaning to her. It was soothing and comforting to her. It was like, like I said, a baby crying. I mean, the crying itself doesn't uh, create anything, uh, of sense. I mean, this is, uh, th- th- that was her, like, co- that was her blanket. It was her Linus blanket. I don't think it has to make sense. I don't think you have to have something make sense in order to derive comfort from it. I don't disagree I don't- with you, but I think in this story, the degree to which she repeated, uh, theorems and ideas at moments of crisis, why was it that theory? Why was it that particular line? What did that line mean? There was no connection so that I could understand why that particular line was being used at that particular moment. Like there's one scene where she says, the sine of two theta equals two times the sine of theta times the cosine of theta. Lydia repeated the trigonomic identity until yada, yada, yada. Why? Why but that see, that's one? a counting. That's a progression. Three, four, five, the first Pythagorean triple. She's progressing. How is that different than a, um, the acknowledgement that you gave that counting is a progression? That's a progression of the uh, theorem. Right, but she does this over and over using different theorems and different identities throughout the book. Why that item at that time? Like I said, I felt like she was reciting words, not that she was actually doing something that made any connection. If she was, she talked about math 
and she repeated mathematical ideas. And there's scenes where she presents a theory, but at no time was I ever in her head to see how she used those mathematical theories and how she actually employed her mathematic genius to arrive at anything. She either had the finished product and handed it to somebody or repeated some words at a moment of crisis that had no connection to anything. And I could not grasp the idea that she was actually doing anything except repeating things. Well, what about her? <laughs> I just so, I mean, your, your view of the book is totally different than mine. I mean, for example, I lost my she, patience with this woman very early. <laughs> she, she, um, well, I, maybe I identify with her. I, everything she did sounded totally reasonable and uh, relatable to me. Um, she, so you're just well, trying to say it's because I'm bad at math, which I am. No, I didn't understand. <laughs> I didn't understand uh, three quarters of the math, but I understood that it served a purpose for her. And uh, for example, uh, uh, she used math to try to rationalize relationships between people, and she contemplated the leverage uh, or. Um, arithmetic power of a particular emotion when uh, measured against another emotion. That's her working through math theorems. And I thought it was really innovative that she, the author would take the idea of a math theorem and, and uh, you, particularly for this character, try to rationalize uh, or, or how people interact with other people and what uh, drove them to make certain decisions because she had made bad decisions in her own life. And I think she was trying to understand how, how it is or why it is she came to those um, decisions and why she went a particular direction. I felt like the mathematics involved in the story did nothing except make her quirky. It was, for me, it was a very superficial eccentricity. It, she did not demonstrate that she actually had mathematical talent. She just knew a lot of mathematical words. I disagree. In fact, I think if you took the mathematics out of the book, you wouldn't have the same story at all, and Lydia would not be the same character. So I just I completely disagree. Well, I'm not I saying mean, that I, mathematics doesn't serve a very distinct narrative purpose. You can't take it out and leave and leave the same story. But, but for then her, it can't be superficial. If no, it, for her, if it's a superficial repeat. eccentricity. It is an eccentricity. Like, she's got red hair and she likes math. That was as deep as it went. For her oh my character God. development. I totally disagree with you. Every time she thinks, she thinks in a math oriented fashion. That's not a superficial characteristic. That's a deeply embedded characteristic. I disagree. I just, I did not think that the mathematics involved in this character were genuine. It did not seem real. It seemed convenient and it seemed repetitious. It was a representative of something rather than being something. No, I disagree. I, I, there, there's a lot of times that I think that there are characteristics that are very superficial, but this, and, and I think that you could apply certain one, certain criticisms in this case, uh, in this book about being superficial, but I don't think the math is one of them. Well, the heroes I found definitely superficial. He had a big old case of insta love, which is not either not my favorite thing. Well, but- yeah, I don't know if it was actually insta love or uh, I did again. I didn't see it that way. I I thought that he had uh, determined that he was going to get married and, and that she would serve his purposes. I don't think that he necessarily loved her, um, but I, I agree that he's the less um, interesting character in the book. No, he's definitely not nearly as interesting as her. My struggle with her 
with 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 Lydia was compounded by the fact that all of the resolution came so easily for me. Wow. Again, I totally disagree. I mean, that the resolution that the, and I don't want to give it away, but I, the resolution's pretty dramatic. It's dramatic, but the hero arrives at acceptance in like two paragraphs. That was a big old problem to be re- resolved in two paragraphs of quiet thought. Why must you dig a hole in the carpet while I'm recording? Every time. Every time. What are you doing? Sit down. The, 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 the secret that she's keeping spans most of the book. And the hero accepts the secret and accepts what happened in, the, in a matter of two paragraphs. That was very hard for me to accept. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't, I'm trying to think back to the, because I just have a different view of the book than you do. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm trying to think whether I agree with you on this particular point. Um, yeah, I mean, I was not bothered by his quick acceptance. It seemed in character um for me, but I can see where you're coming from. There wasn't a lot of contemplation about mm-hmm. uh, that, but um, I think that he he liked the people involved, and 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 that's why he accepted it. But I can see that you know more contemplation about those issues. I mean, he he was just unconcerned with her, and I appreciate that her lack of virginal state, and so I think that that uh, attitude had more to do with the acceptance for me than anything else. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear from early on that she's not a virgin. No, it is very clear. That, that is something I did like. I liked that despite being a genius, despite being isolated, and despite having a talent that might otherwise cause her to be completely innocent and, and ignorant in everything. She actually knew about her own sexuality enough to know what she wanted. So she wasn't stupid about herself when she had knowledge that she needed to process. It's really hard not to spoil this book. Damn. The funny thing is right after this book, I started reading the mad Lord's daughter by Jane Goodger. Godger. I'm going to say that wrong. I think it's Goodger. And in that book, the heroine is a young woman who has been kept locked up by her father because after her mother dies of a fever, her father becomes convinced that if she goes outside or touches another person, she'll get sick and die. So when her father dies, she has to leave her home because it's been sold to someone else. And this is the first time she's interacting with people or dealing with society at all. Now, that's a complete fantasy situation. It's completely off the wall. But that's somebody who's completely ignorant in every way. She doesn't. She knows the rules. She knows how to go about in society. It's not like she's, you know, Tarzan. But she has no experience with any of this. With Lydia in a study in seduction, she had had experiences that she used and then processed and learned from, which I appreciated about her. I can't believe our, our opinions are so wildly different about this book. Yeah, it's like you. we read two different books. <laughs> I know, I know. I just, I honestly, I, one, of my, one, of my, one of my notes about this book is it's like she's repeating successories. And, and yeah, I don't disagree with that statement, but I don't see that there was anything implausible or uh, inauthentic about that in any way. See, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it demonstrated any real genius. It demonstrated a vocabulary. She knew some words. 
Well, not every act of a person has to demonstrate genius. No, I mean, certainly I've, not. But the number of times she quotes these theorems and identities should have, at some point, I thought, led to an indication that she actually knew what she was talking about. And I never got that sense. Well, I think that the point was that she would, I mean, there's plenty of math in the book. And I didn't understand, like I said, you know, 75% of it. <laughs> people are going to be like, I don't want to read this book. There's a, math, there's a math quiz in the back, people. It's a quiz. But uh, it was clear to me she was a genius. <laughs> I, mean, I just, uh, you know, it, it just was. Yeah. So. Well, that's, you and I rarely agree about historical. It's very interesting. Well, I think we rarely agree about any book. There are a couple where we're, but where the book is extraordinary enough. Speaking of, I got um, the graphic novel copy of Alpha and Omega by Patricia Briggs. I think those are so ridiculous. Okay, first of all, it's drawn by the same guy who drew Anita. Um, I almost said Anita Hill, and that is not right. <laughs> Anita Blake and gave her thighs like somebody online said it looked like they parked a Volkswagen on her legs. It's that same look with giant hips, giant thighs, tiny, tiny, tiny waist. And Anna has the biggest lips. It's like it's Mick Jagger. She's the biggest friggin' lips and big eyes and giant like freckles like dinner plates. So as I was reading it, they did not look at all what I what I expected. And I'm I'm not the audience for this. But I just want to like go find people who are going to read it and say, look, that's not quite what they looked like, really. Trust me. But I am not a graphic novel person. Yeah, I'm not a graphic novel person either. I don't. I, there's clearly an audience for them, but it's not me. No, it's not me either. So, how do you feel about answering some listener mail? Sure, you read them. All right, we got a lot of listener mail from the discussion about serial fiction. So here are a couple. Uh, messages. Now, I haven't read all of these, so if we decide we don't want to answer, we'll just skip it. Okay. So this message is from Nicole. Dear Sarah and Jane, I'm so glad you did a podcast on serial fiction because I've been noticing more and more of these books, and I personally don't care for them. I find it really frustrating to read a chapter at a time, so I wait until all the parts are published before starting a story. However, waiting for all the parts to be put out is also frustrating because I'm collecting the book because I want to read it. You mentioned Jin Hale's series, The Rifter, in the podcast, and I've been in the process of collecting the parts of that book for several months months now. I have a Kindle, so I would just like to purchase it through Amazon. I don't like having accounts at all different kinds of ebook re- re- retailers because I don't like having my credit card information spread out all over the place. So far, only a few of the parts are available, and I'm dying to read it because I know I will love this book. I emailed the author, and she says they're forthcoming to Amazon. However, it's taking forever, and due to this frustration, I've been trying to stay away from serial books. Despite this revolution re- resolution, I recently started another serial by Jordan Castile Price. She offered the three parts of her ongoing turbulent serial for free, so I got them. Now she's charging $1.99 for the subsequent parts. I'm really aggravated about this because I find the premise of the story really interesting, but I would be essentially paying $2 for around 30 pages. I find this offensive. I want authors to be able to support themselves by their writing, but I don't want it to be at my expense. I don't make a lot of money. Basically, all the money I have for entertainment purposes I spend on books. And able to be satisfied with my reading experience, I know not only want to read a great story, but I want to feel that the money I spent on it was worth it. I can read 30 pages in about 15 minutes, which to me is not worth paying $2. I feel like there's no way I can win in this situation. I can continue the story and enjoy it, but I'll always be aggravated, aggravated by the price I had to pay for it. 
Or I don't buy them, and I never know how the story ends, which frustrates me also. Is this really how an author wants their readers to feel? Cheers, Nicole. I can't say I disagree with her. $2 for 30 pages is a kind of a lot of money. Well, I mean, I think serials are here to stay. I don't know uh, what... I don't think every book works in serial format, and I don't think it's going to replace long-form narrative um, books entirely, but uh, economically... They're having a lot of success. I just don't see it subsiding. Um, no, Amazon, Amazon uh, announced its new lineup of tablets last week, and during their press conference, they also announced the emergence of Kindle single serials. It's where you buy for a, a set price an ongoing serial, and then in regular installments, they're added or appended to the end of your um, file on a regular basis. The introductory price is very cheap, $1.99. What they will be uh, in the end, I don't know. But clearly, Amazon sees uh, serials as a popular form of consumption for some segment of the readership. So... I think what you'll see is that there will be some books that come out in serials that will be followed by a hardcover or um, trade paperback, and then after that time frame, uh, you know, has sold out or sold through, then you'll probably see a price reduction. So, you know, if if a reader is not a fan of a serial, uh, either because it takes too long to get to the end of the story or it costs too much then for those particular stories, I think they'll just have to wait until the book is either on sale or has been uh, reduced for various uh, uh, reasons. I think what what frustrates Nicole is, is similar to what frustrates me. I like the idea of paying one price and then having the additions automatically added. I would be terrible at remembering to go back. And I would be bothered by paying $2 for 30 pages as well. However, I saw some people talking about this on fanfic re- or on fanfic on Twitter recently, and it seemed like the the response was, "Oh, great! Another thing that we have to blame fanfic for. There's clearly an audience that will wait weekly, monthly, whatever for the next chapter of a of a story to take place, and it makes me think about the idea that at a conference, I think this was a year or two ago, there's an agent named Cherry Weiner, I know I talked about this before, who said that it's not really fair to read a series all in order because that's not how the author wrote them. And maybe this will be a change in the way these stories are read rather than read all at once at the end, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. Reading a story piece by piece reveals something else about the story. Now, I might be being too generous about the intention there. So I'm sure the overlying intention is to make money because it's popular right now. It may create a different kind of story, which is I'm all in favor of new kinds of stories. I'm just not in favor of, like Nicole, $2 for 30 pages. Come on. I could come up with my own 30 pages for free, which is probably the goal. Well, then the response is, of course, then don't buy it. That's exactly right. So I didn't. You ready for another email? Sure. This is from Anna, and she writes in part, Do you think the current success in serials is off the back of the success of Fifty Shades of Grey? It seems to me that serials I see doing well are erotic romance, and many are marketed using 50-style covers. Do you think this revival will include other subgenres of romance or genres outside romance? You mentioned Tor is releasing serial sci-fi, she believes, so she'll have to watch and see what happens. Um, Wanted to know what we thought. What do you think? Well, I think that uh, publishers in all... uh, 
areas are going to be trying out cereals. I mean, there's really no harm in doing it. I mean, if the cereal fails, you put it together in a book and you sell it. I mean, there's um, very little downside, I think, to trying the cereal. Yep. So John Scalzi's next book is going to be serialized before it comes out in a hardcover. Um, Karina Press is doing a serial next year in a science fiction fantasy. Um, what the first St. Martin's Press serial recently uh, was the serialization of the Sweet Valley High, mm-hmm. um, which is clearly not Fifty Shades driven. Um, so <laughs> Fifty Shades of Wakefield. <laughs> uh, so I think that I think what we're seeing right now is a time of experimentation. And this is what publishers should be doing. They should be experimenting in digital delivery of content um, and trying out different um, types of consumption products for readers. There's not going to be one product that serves everybody in the same fashion. And it's smart business, in my um, opinion, to experiment with this sort of thing. Uh, if they don't sell, then obviously uh, cereals will fall by the wayside. And it might just be that right now cereals uh, are a flash in the pan, meaning they'll be popular for a couple of years and then they'll die off and we'll think, you know, five years from now, oh, do you remember when there was this big glut of cereals? But I do think that readers who are reading on smaller screens um, aren't bothered by the shorter uh, length consumption. And when you're only paying a dollar or two dollars per consumption, uh, it doesn't seem that expensive unless you sit down and um, kind of add it all up. So individual purchases uh, that are short kind of fill the time be- between waiting for your kid at the soccer practice or standing in line for groceries. Um, it might be the only amount of time that a person has to read at night. They don't have time to read an entire book in a 30-minute uh, um, short uh, is satisfactory. And then uh, I, when I did my research for the uh, post I did, um, there, was a great pe- there was a great academic paper, um, and I don't remember who it's by right now, but uh, they suggested that serialization has been the major form of consumption of entertainment in modern time. And if you think about the episodic nature of some of the most popular television shows, um, uh, how soap operas have fed that, mm-hmm. um, uh, comic books, for example, those are the, some of the examples that this person used to uh, show how uh, serialization consumption has been a mainstay of our me- entertainment uh, consumption, and and now maybe it's just working its way again into fiction because that's how f- uh, mass fiction became popularized in the early 1800s with uh, serialization. I was actually thinking when you were talking about uh, publishers taking risks and exploring new opportunities, there sort of response and attitude towards the creation of digital serial is very different from the initial reaction to ebooks, which is, no, no, don't go near there. We don't want any of that crap. So there's a definite curiosity about trying new things. And it reminds me a little bit about novellas. Do you remember a couple of years ago, novellas were not digitally published as often and there were more anthologies, but you saw there was a Christmas anthology and then there'd be another anthology. And you didn't see a huge number of them 
Now there's novellas in between series. There's novellas as prequels. There's novellas everywhere. And I really like novellas after having been schooled and how awesome they are. This seems similar to me that there's a more positive curiosity rather than a wholesale rejection. No, that's too much trouble. There's a lot of seemingly technological problems like thinking, think of the bundle. You know, the great thing about the bundle is you get only a few books for um, a lower cost. The really crappy thing about the bundle is that you get five books in one giant file and then you, you can't, can't split them. <laughs> right. You can't sort them and you can't find anything. And then the, and then the, you know, how far along you are in the book is all screwed up. Yep. So, um, there's no anchors, like you can't jump to one. There's, there's a lot of, uh, innovation that can be done in ebook technology. So I'm, (laughs) I'm glad that there's some exploration of that. Yes. Um, you know, when you bring up the novella, I think this is maybe some good news for those who don't like serials. Um, for a long time, uh, erotic romance has been, uh, uh, no, novellaized, meaning the the erotic romances have been truncated, and so all you're getting are these novellas, which for me, especially uh, in erotic romance, was never very satisfying. Um, and I think with the rise of Fifty Shades and the success of that book, you're seeing a return to more um, longer, meatier books. Uh, meteor erotic romances. And I think that's great. In fact, one of the things about self-publishing I'm finding is there's a lot of books that are really, really long. Sometimes they're over long, but there's a real um, kind of sense of um, satisfaction that you get when you get more story than you expect. This is from Laza. I called into the podcast voicemail box as soon as you created it with a question about category romances. I'd asked for suggestions because I was going on a field trip to a used bookstore in the basement of my local library and they have shelves and shelves of category romances and I wanted to get some suggestions. I went with three colleagues. After working together for a couple years, we finally figured out that we all love romances and we even started a trashy book club where we get together formally. This is in addition to the constant discussion we have in the hallways and at the water cooler every so often to talk about what we're reading and suggest titles to each other. When we all spent way too much money on way too many books, we decided to keep them all at the office so we could access them and thus was born my trashy book drawer. Thank you for the suggestions. And thanks to your suggestions, we pretty much cleared out their stock of Sarah Mayberry. Plus, we picked up Karina Bliss, one by Caitlin Cruz, and a few others by authors whose single titles I'd read, never knowing that they'd also written category, like Jill Shalvis and Robin Carr. We also picked up a few just because they looked utterly ridiculous. We are very much enjoying our stash and your recommendations, both on the podcast and your respective blogs, and I just wanted to say thank you and keep up the great work. I will put these pictures up and I'll send them to you. There's an entire huge, long file desk drawer, like one of those huge storage file cabinet drawers stuffed full of romance. I want to go dive in this drawer right now. Wait until you see these pictures. They're so awesome. So is there anything else you want to add to the podcast this week? Yeah, I was just going to say maybe we want to talk a little bit about the pricing of digital books since the Department of Justice settlement was approved by the court and their HarperCollins. Okay. Bring it, bring it. And now legal schooling from Jan. So September 6th, I think it was, uh, Judge Cote uh, approved the settlement between um, and, uh, between Department of Justice, Hachette, Simon & Schuster, and HarperCollins. And that starts the clock on 
when discounting will begin uh, at, within seven days of the uh, entry of the judgment. So just a couple days from now, they, uh, the settling defendants have to, or the settling publishers have to terminate their agreement with Apple. So that would take place on the 13th. And then within 30 days, so that'd be October 6th, the uh, agency contracts were to be severed and new contracts, well, if they want their books to be sold, um, new contracts made with the retailers. HarperCollins has already abandoned agency, and there is just a discounting jamboree going on at all of the various retailers. Books on Board had them 24% off. The entire, I believe, HarperCollins catalog that they had um, at all romance ebooks, you can use those HarperCollins books toward your um, buy, uh, you know, the buy 10, get one free and other types of uh, loyalty programs that they have. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple have been discounting them like crazy. So you really want to start shopping around if you're going to buy a HarperCollins book. And that's in addition to the sales that they create themselves, right? Right. And I don't know now what, whether they'll continue that or, or what will happen to that because, you know, they're not in control of their pricing anymore to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So what do you think will be the next thing that happens? More discounting. I mean, ultimately, Yay! have Simon and & Schuster and uh, Hachette uh, that go forward. And it'll be interesting to see what Random House does because Random House was not party to the suit. They didn't engage in agency pricing until uh, almost a year, I think it was, after the other publishers had... Uh, followed suit. And there's some suggestion that they actually benefited from having their books being discounted while everybody else's books were higher. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see whether they will go back to wholesale or some some type of agreement that allows retailers to discount their books or not, because they can do whatever they want. Right. What do you think that they'll do? Do you have any guesses? Boy, I don't have any guesses. My I mean, my best guess would be that they would go back to the wholesale agreement because they had seen, um, if if reports are true, um, a, a rise of book sales when their books were discounted, um, and and it, it appeared that it was only under great pressure from various parties that they uh, went agency. So it seems to. So my best guess is that they would abandon it before the holiday season. Unless they determine, you know, that the benefit that they get, because they, they, they make less money off of an agency-sold ebook than they do a wholesale-sold ebook. So, you know, ultimately the question is uh, whether they would re- rather retain control over their pricing uh, or whether they're going to go and, and try to get a greater margin. What... Um what do you think will be the outcome of the people who did not, of the people, of the publishers that did not participate in the settlement? Well, um, I, it's very expensive for them to continue, but both Penguin and Macmillan seem kind of um, intransigent. So They're very entrenched in the position, that's for sure. So, you know, the longer that they can hold out of, uh, with agency – um, they might perceive that to be the best. I, I think that um, 
you rarely see Penguin discounting books like like HarperCollins did or um, Hachette did. So maybe they're just going to hold out. I, I, I don't know. It's every every determination of whether you're going to settle or proceed with litigation involves a risk-benefit analysis and not being inside Penguin. Um, you're not inside a Penguin right now? No, or a Macmillan. I can't say. I think that Penguin is uh, in greater legal jeopardy based upon the actions of their um, C- president and CEO uh, than Macmillan. Um, but but uh, and I think Apple has the least legal jeopardy of all of them, and the deepest pockets. Oh yeah, they're just sitting on a big old pile of cash. Yeah. So uh, I I I perceive Apple litigating this out, um, and maybe Penguin Macmillan says, you know, we'll cost, we'll share in the cost of these legal defenses, and we'll ride it out with you. If Apple settles, I think the other two cave like. <laughs> <laughs> That. Like in 12 seconds? Yeah. Boom. <laughs> but the longer Apple stays in it, uh, you know, the longer I think the other two would. I, I don't think that they proceed alone, though. I thought the legal jeopardy for Simon & Schuster was probably the greatest based upon the allegations in the petition. But I think that Penguin could be very close behind. Um and it's a difficult soup for them to win. I don't think that they win in a trial. They'd have to have it overturned on appeal and have the the appellate court say, no, this was a vertical price fixing. There was no collusion or, or conspiracy that took place, and it should be measured under a rule of reason, which is a lower standard. That's the only way I think that they win. And that's kind of a remote possibility in your opinion, right? Like, oh, oh, no. I think that the Second Circuit could overturn the, the Judge Coates' decision. You think so? Um, I mean, I, I think I'd have to wait and see um, some of the more evidence. But I think, like, I think that they have a 95% chance of losing a trial and maybe, you know, a 60-40 chance of losing an appellate court. So, yeah, I think that their um, their risk is lower on appeals than it is right now. I mean, I, I, I'd bet money they're going to lose a trial court. So are you going to actually travel to the trial and sit in? No. But, <laughs> you know, it was originally scheduled the same week as BEA, and I was tempted to go over because I'm probably going to go to BEA next year. Um, so I was tempted to go over to the courthouse and listen in. But oh, now that would be so cool. Now it's the week after, and I just don't know I want to be gone that long. I don't like that BEA is during the week. Yeah, it's very difficult. And it's yeah. just it's just and you have to be in the Javits Center, which is just a soul-suckingly miserable experience on its in itself. It's terrible, but I think that for me, I get you know, I've been trying to evaluate the conferences and I think I get more I got more out of my experience at BEA, not at BEA itself, but in BEA surrounded activities. So that's all for this week of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening. Future podcasts will include Jane and me probably arguing about something else because we often do that. I mean, we are friends, but we don't agree on just about anything. It's true. The music that you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater, and you can follow her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. 
The piece of music you're listening to is performed by Jade Simmons, and this is the Samuel Barber Sonata for Piano, Opus 26. This particular sonata, I learned, was composed in 1949. I will have information in the podcast entry at Smart Bitches and at Dear Author about Jade Simmons and where you can purchase this album if you're interested. Harlequin would also like you to know that Susan Wiggs fans can go on a Lakeshore Chronicles treasure hunt to find a secret coupon code anytime now through September 30th. Visit harlequin.com slash treasure hunt for more information. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us and give us an idea for a future podcast topic or you have something you'd like to say in response to one of our more recent podcasts you have lots of options you can call our google voice number which is 201-371-DBSA that is a u.s number or you can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com we really enjoy doing the podcast and we hope that you enjoy listening wherever you are we wish you the very best of reading <laughs>